Take your Bibles and join me one last time, at least for this sermon series in the book of Jude. If you're new with us, the second last book of the Bible, very small, at least small in number, not small in message, my goodness. There has been so much that God has has shown us here. Yes, um, so we're, yeah, we're about to uh, land the plane on our Colorado missions offering, and I normally don't do this, but I'm, I'm going to this time. Our goal is 7,500, and normally we really get around that. We really get around that goal. I'm not sure um, what's happening, but if uh, God is continuing to lean on you as far as giving to this, so far we've raised about $2,600, and I understand that there's other offerings that we're asking you to contribute to, but please don't forget about the missions and how we can, how we can pour into and to be able to help the Colorado missionaries and ministries that are going on here to be able to do that. They rely on us, and I want to make sure that we are continuing to, to give toward that. So it's the last I'll say about it in that way, but please continue to uh, remember all the mis- ministries and missionaries that are going on here in, uh, in our great state. Why don't we stand together and just read these two short verses in honor of his word. Jude 24 and 25, the last two verses. This is the word of the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord, may we remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, let's be seated. Some of you may know who Thomas Ken is, but I would venture to say that the majority of us don't. But I'd love to introduce him to you this morning. He lived in from the mid-1600s to the early 1700s. And uh, he was born an orphan, and so thankfully, uh, his sister and her husband, who were both very solid Christians, took him in, raised him in the faith. Um, he, had, um, he had a really bright mind, and he also wanted to uh, pursue the things of the Lord, and so he began to study. And so he went to Westminster College, and he ended up having a number of ministry positions, not the least of which was that he was chaplain to King Charles II. He had a really high standard of biblical understanding and morality when the king wanted him, wanted Thomas Ken to give up his um, cottage, if you will, I, for lack of a better word, to give up his cottage so that the king could house his mistress. Um, Thomas Ken said, I, I don't think so, and he raised, he raised some sand about it. And rather than losing his job, he was actually honored for it. That doesn't always happen, but, he, but the Lord was able to preserve him. When he was teaching, one of the things he wanted to do was help his students to make sure that they were getting deeper, not only in their mind, but also in their hearts and in their souls. And so what he did was he compiled a a set of hymns for them to sing when they got up in the morning and and set to sing right before they laid down at night. And one of the hymns was called Awake My Soul, which is a rather long hymn, and I'll spare you that, but I would like to share with you the last verse of that. And I guarantee you that if you've been in church world for any amount of time, you probably know it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
Amen. What's that called? That's called the doxology. So if you're new to this, that's what it's called. And what the word doxology means, and if I were to ask you that, I had to look it up. Because it's like, what's the doxology? Well, it's praise God from whom all blessings flow. Well, that's actually capital D doxology. But what a doxology is, the word doxa means glory. Ology means the word of or speaking it. So we're speaking his glory. It's an act of praise. And there's a number of doxologies that are littered all through Scripture. Lots of them in the Psalms. Paul included a bunch of them. But here, what I just read to you is a doxology. It is a speaking of his glory. And when we're looking at this passage, we see in these two verses, a little microcosm of the whole, isn't it? Because 25 verses, there's so much in here. We were reminded about our status, that we are ones as Christians who are called and beloved and kept. We're reminded that we are to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints We are reminded to do that. And in the midst of that contending for the faith, we're also to make sure that we're being aware of the false teachers that have come along all through history. Jude, that expert Old Testament historian, is reminding us over and over and over about what happened in the Old Testament, how there were some who were constantly trying to pull people away. They were looking at the Bible through the lens of self rather than looking at the Bible through the lens of God. What do you want me to know? And then he gets into verses 17 to 23, which we talked about last week. And we're talking about how we are to keep ourselves in the love of God by making sure that we're being built up in the most holy faith, that we're praying in the Spirit, and that we are waiting for the mercy of our Lord as we ourselves are dispensing mercy to others. But he ends by not simply talking to Christians and not simply talking about false teachers. He ends by talking about our great and glorious God. We can't forget about that. Because sometimes we can spend so much time thinking about the things here that we forget to go vertical. We need to make sure that we are going vertical. And so the title of the sermon this morning is Now to Him Who is Able, He Who Steadies and Readies Us for His Glory. Let's talk about that a bit. How does God make us steady? Well, I get that from verse 24, now to him, to who? To him. Because sometimes we think it's all about our power and our strength. This is what I am going to do to make sure that I am staying steady for him. And when we're looking at what God has called us to do, we realize we can't keep ourselves steady. We can't do it. And the the sooner it comes to... Heaven, heaven has recognized that we can't do it. We can't keep ourselves steady. There's freedom in that. Because sometimes we spend so much time and give ourselves so much grief because we've sinned or we've blown it. You know, we should, but it's because we've grieved him. But he also gives us the tools and his word and his power and his spirit to stay steady. So, what are we looking at? What is he protecting us from? What is he keeping us from? Well, again, if you look in verse um, 2, it talks about we, we are kept for Christ Jesus. Verse 21, we are keeping ourselves um, in the love of God. 
and then we get another piece of, of, of keeping. Now, this is where the English language may fail us a bit because the word that's here that's talking about keep is actually not the same word as the other. This is the only time that this word is mentioned in the, in the New Testament. And what it's talking about here is a protecting. It's a military term. It's a protection or a, a guarding to make sure that you are staying where you need to stay. You are staying at your post. So it is protecting you from apostasy. It's a protecting you from completely falling away from the faith altogether. When Jesus was giving his high priestly prayer in John 17, in John 17, 12, it says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. He's talking about the disciples. I kept them. And you think about that. How much How many people were coming against the disciples to try to get them to fall away? How many people were coming against Jesus to try to get him to fall away? So the way that they kept in there was because Jesus was the one that kept them. I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which is explaining how Judas fell away. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed. Are you with me, church? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We don't have it yet, but one day we will. It's being kept in the ultimate safe deposit box. And we're going to be able to apprehend it because Christ is the key to be able to open up that box for us to, to grab it. I read to you earlier from 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. I know you remember all the words, but I'm going to say it to you again in case you don't. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are already being guarded, and that's that word, kept, guarded, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Harry Ironside, who was a pastor in uh, in Philadelphia a long time ago, he stated that salvation was like Noah inviting a pagan in his day to place his trust in God's word and come into the ark, but some view salvation like Noah offering to put a peg on the outside of the ark. If you just hang on through the storm, you'll be saved. But salvation, and hear this, salvation is not dependent on our holding on to God, but on our being securely held by and in Christ. It's not how hard you hold, because there's going to be days when you're not going to feel like holding, or you're not going to hold very well, because our strength goes up and down, but it's about how we are held. It's Him. It's all about Him. This is where it comes to, to where it's talking about bearing fruit. I think there's a lot of us and there's, there's issues in the church because I grew up with this and I know I wasn't the only one. And as I was going to other churches, I realized that others were hearing this. That again, it's not about simply about the decision you make and then you can go on your merry way doing whatever you want, saying whatever you want, thinking whatever you want, engaged in whatever you want. But I, I, I made that decision. No, it's talking about bearing fruit, which we've, we've addressed before in, in looking, at this, looking at this passage. I keep getting dry at about the 10-minute mark. I don't know why that is. But what it's talking about bearing fruit. 
And when Jesus is talking about bearing fruit in John chapter 15, in verses 5 to 8, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, that means to live in him, to be with him, to be connected with him, to be in him. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So if you're abiding in him, you're going to bear fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience. You're going to want to serve him. You're going to long to obey him. You're not going to want anything in your life that's not his. Rather than making excuses, which we'll talk about in a moment. He it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do what? I'm glad your versions say that because some people, the way we sometimes act is, well, I can do something. No, we can do nothing. We can't do anything of eternal significance that glorifies him if we're not in Christ. Can't happen. And it goes on, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So now we see both. We're abiding in him. His word is abiding in us. Ask me whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Oh, I want a new car. I want a million dollars. No, because if his word is abiding in you, you're going to want to ask something in accordance with his word. And if it's not in accordance with his word, then if he answers no, then you're like, okay, that must not have been what you wanted from me and for me. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and show proved to be my disciples. What kind of fruit are we bearing? There was a time when I was, I was very young in, in the faith. And I think I shared this on Wednesday night, so you, you, get, you guys get to hear this again. But there was a lady that called me, and I was very young. And it's, it's interesting that when you're 52, which is next week for me, when you're 52 and someone calls and asks you a question, it's, they, they, they respond to you differently than when you were, you were a 32-year-old pastor and they call and ask you a question. Because when you're 32, you get to where you don't know anything. Every so often, I've been reminded, you know, that when you get to a certain age, now you'll know stuff. That doesn't happen, actually. You actually begin to know how much you don't know. You really begin to realize what kind of an idiot you are the older you get. It just opens up. It's great. But 32, 33, 35 years old, this lady who had not come to our church very often, but she was a member. You know how that goes, but she was a member. And her, her son died. And so she called and she wanted to have me to give assurance that her son, who made a decision when he was six, but had not borne any fruit, had not gone to church, had not done anything, she wanted me to give her assurance that her son was in heaven. Now, what would you do, Right? And so I had just done a study on John 15, and I could not give her that assurance because I asked her, well, what kind of fruit was he bearing? I didn't ask it like that. Nobody talks like that in real life. But, you know, I asked her, well, tell, tell me a little bit about his life. Did, did, did Jesus seem to be the sinner? I mean, what, what was his church life? You know, well, not, none of that. And I said, well, I said, I hope he is. I, I really do. But I said, I don't know. And she got so angry at me because I was talking about the lack of fruit that was being born. The, her, her, her anger was directed in the wrong place. Jesus is telling us, what kind of fruit are you bearing? Because all of us who've been around the gospel, we know the right thing to do. But we end up making all of these, all of these, whatever, all these excuses over and over. And you say, well, God doesn't, when he's, he's, it's, he's not going to keep us from stumbling. Well, the idea is falling away. Then what do we do with all the people that seem to have been going to church their whole life? And then all of a sudden they say, I've had it. 
I've, I've had enough. The problem is, is that I get very fearful for those, for two people. One, who have seemed to profess Christ for so long, done all the stuff, said all the right things, and then go and won't come back. Does that mean that he is lying here? That well, It seems like he hadn't kept them from falling away. Well, it may go to show that they were never Christians at all. I believe that it does. First John 2 talks about they went out from us, showing that they were never a part of us. And this is the reality. Well, that sounds mean, Pastor Matt. This is the reality. We're talking about eternity. We're not talking about people's feelings right now. We're talking about the truth of eternity that Jesus has put before us. But I also get nervous about people who, I'm a Christian, once saved, always saved, I can do whatever I want. If you're truly saved, then that means the Spirit is in you, and, you, and instead of you obeying, you're making excuses for disobedience. And Jesus is coming along and saying, that's not what I had for you. My way is always the right way for you. And that's where he, it, it bleeds over into this next piece. How does God get us ready? He makes us steady. How does he get us ready? Well, he says this, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. A couple of things here. Number one, you and I and everybody that walks planet earth is going to have to give an account for the life that they've lived. You and I and everybody that walks on this planet is going to have to give an account for the excuses that we made for our disobedience for the words that we've said, for the thoughts that we have thought, for the actions that we have, we have done, for all of the idle stuff that we, out of the overflow, even, you know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, all of those things. God has us completely and totally under his loving and caring but careful surveillance. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight. And so when we look at that, we're like, we're not just thinking about, well, that's all the people out there, not us good people in here. No, that's, that's all of us that are, that are having to give an evaluation where Jesus says through the Apostle Paul, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so we look at this, here's, here's the question. When God makes you aware in his word of what sin is, and this is what sin is. Now, he's given us a whole book, and he's given us a crucified Christ to show us and to leave us no excuse of what sin is. That's why we preach a crucified Christ. That's what it took to forgive our sin. Him dying so that we might have life. And yet, those of us that are Christians that are in unrepentant, perpetual sin, whether public or private, all of a sudden we say we're Christians, that means we trust in what Christ has done, and yet we're turning right around and using that to justify our sin. Well, he, he saved me. Do whatever I want. And listen, I bought that. I, I, was, I was all in on that for a long, long time justifying. My fear is that those of you that may be in perpetual and unrepentant sin and are feeling no conviction about it and you're making excuses for it, I, I'm so fearful for you. Because what more can he say than to you he has said? That old hymn. He, he's given you the information. 
He's given to you His Spirit to convict. And if there's no conviction over sin, what is going on? What will be your end? But that's for all of us. Not just the public stuff, not just the stuff that we see on the news, not the, just the stuff that's being paraded on TVs and, and movies and now commercials. Good grief, can't even get, can't even, just, just tell me what the product is. We don't have to go into all this other stuff. Just tell me what the product is. I'll make a decision. Thank you very much. But, not, but it's everywhere now where there is this pull to get away from God's design. That's what sin is. Anything that's away from God's design. And we can't compromise when it comes to that. He has done too much in us, through us, and for us for us to compromise and to say it. But what does it mean to be blameless? Well, what it means to be blameless is, is not sinless. Because there is no one of us that is going to be able to stand before Christ and say, I am sinless. We've all blown it. We may have blown it in conventional ways that people say, well, that's not so bad. That's just a white lie. That's just an affair. That's just, uh, you know, we, we try to, we try to use these words that make sin sound like this great big party, such fun. And yet what it is, it's, it's, it's God telling us and we, we, we come along and we, we're we're not, none of us are going to be able, whether it's according to respectable and Conventional sins or unconventional sins, all of it is sin. None of us are going to be able to stand before God blameless. None of us. Sinless. Thank you. Yes. None of us are going to be able to stand before God sinless. But we are going to be able to stand before Him blameless. How? We preach a crucified Christ. We don't preach him just as a prophet, just as a priest, just as a king. He is all of those and more. But a crucified Christ means we can be a blameless Christian because he's taken our sin. Our sin. What is that? That sin is not only that which is away from the design of God. That sin is what separates you from any hope of God outside of someone taking it. There's a big word that theologians like to use, and I, I, I like to use it too, but I also like to explain it. Substitutionary atonement. That means that Christ paid for your sin as our substitute. Somebody is going to have to pay for it. He's not just going to let it poof. We don't want that in the justice system here, and we certainly don't want that from the King of kings and Lord of lords. So he removes the blemishes. He removes the blemishes. You don't need makeup or concealer. None of that. That's what we try to do to remove blemishes. But the, really, the blemishes are still there, right? You got to take the makeup off and the concealer off and all that stuff at night. And there it is in full glory. There's the mirror. The one, that thing that doesn't lie is the mirror. But there's the blemishes. But, but Christ spiritually... He doesn't just cover it, but it's still there. He takes it away. It's gone. He throws our sins, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. And you know what the rest of that says? He remembers them no more. He's not senile. 
That's not what he's saying. It's not like, oh, I forgot all about it. I didn't know. No, it's not according to our account anymore. It's not against us. Our sin is no longer against us. It is Christ who is for us. Do you see what he has done? So how could we ever entertain sin in our lives? Because our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects the ones we love. It may even affect our neighbors. It can affect our family. It, can, it, it affects everybody. Our sin is never personal. And it's never ultimately private because it affects us. And so he removes our blemishes. And we're clean. Whiter than snow. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. We sing about this stuff all the time. Do we really believe it? Has it drilled down into who we are? Now, there's one more thing I want to make sure that we know before we leave. We can sometimes be so thankful for the things that God does for us that we can forget about the God who does those things. We, we, we love the blessings, Thank you, Lord, for the car. Thank you for the job. Thank you for soft seats. Thank you for lovely family. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we could get so drilled down into the the blessings and we just go on our way that sometimes we forget the one who blesses. But look at how Jude opts to end this this, this passage and this letter. To present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Whose joy? My joy? Yeah. I'm going to get to heaven. Thankful to be there. Thankful that I, that the, for the one that brought me there. But you know, I think there's another piece of joy that is there. I think there's going to be a joy on Jesus's face too. We're going to be presented to him with great joy. Whose joy? His joy? My joy? Yes. His, it's going to be a joyful time. I saved you. You made it. Yes. I'm the one, that, listen, I, I, I knew it, right? Because he accomplished it. And here we go. Let's have a great time. You know, everywhere that Jesus went, they always called him a drunkard. You know why? Because he was having a good time. He loved, now, he wasn't, he was, he was having a good time, wasn't a drunkard. He always kept his, his mind about it, but he enjoyed himself so much that the religious people were like, what are you doing? That's not how we act. But look at what happens here. To the only God. How many gods are there? One. Quiz, right? See, sometimes quizzes are good. Multiple choice. One or not one? One. One God. First Timothy 2, 5. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One God. Three persons, yes, one God. Don't try to do the math. Just trust the one who gives it to us because it has to work out that way. Otherwise, it doesn't. Our Savior, our Messiah, the one who rescues us from sin and death and hell, he saves us. He doesn't just save us from a bad day. He saves us from a bad eternity. He's rescuing us from sin. He's rescuing us from ourselves. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, Jesus, Savior, Christ, the Anointed One, our possessive Lord, King, Master, be what? Glory, 
glory is defined as the visible manifestation of his character, which is most seen in his name, because his name and his character are one. Majesty, that's a state of greatness. Eminence, majesty. And we've seen it, O Lord, our Lord, in Psalm 8, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Dominion, that means he is the ruler, king of kings, lord of lords. He rules the universe. Authority, that's where he exercises that rule. He is overall. Abraham Kuyper, I remind you of what he said, that there's not one square inch of this universe where God does not say, mine. If you want another hymn, I got one for you by Walter Smith. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, and light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. I told you a few weeks ago when we, were, we had a Wednesday night service and, and I asked someone to pray. And what they started praying was, now I'm prone to get right into the requests. And this person began to pray the names and the attributes of God. Do you think that ushered us into his presence? Absolutely. And that's what we have to remember. If you're wondering what to pray, pray back his word. And then if you're really wondering what to pray, just pray back to him who he is and what he's done. You will have plenty of fodder for prayer. I promise you. Charles Spurgeon said, if you are really saved, brethren, Not a hair of your heads belongs to yourselves. Christ's blood has either bought you or it has not. And if it has, then you are altogether Christ's, every bit of you. And you you are neither to eat nor drink nor to sleep, but for Christ. Everything we are, everything we have, everything we do, from from the simplest things of when we're eating, from being able to take a, a, to have the strength to be able to take a fork and to be able to have strength to apprehend our food and to be able to bring the food about a foot and a half, depending on how tall you are, for me about six inches, from about, from about here to, my, to your mouth, and to be able to chew it and to be able to have all that working in there, to be able to digest, to be able, all of that, it's a simple thing, but it's really not a simple thing when you think about it and God has it all planned out, figured out, and it's a glorious thing when you see 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. Our lives need to be a doxology. Remember what doxology is? Remember how it's defined? It's not, it's not the title of a song, which is great, but it drives it through what it really is. We're speaking His glory. Our words, our thoughts, our actions, while maybe not always speaking directly Scripture, everything that we say should be scriptural. It should be according to His glory and the good of those that are around us. Our lives need to be a doxology. And we can be grateful, dear Christian. I want to talk to Christians just for a couple of seconds. We can be grateful that we are kept and guarded and protected and preserved, even in the midst of our frailties and foibles. He protects us and keeps us. But that is not an excuse to do whatever you want. 
It's a, it, it, is, it is not leverage for you to say, well, he's, he saved me. Boom, boom, boom. I'm going to go do whatever I want. That is to, to being fueled by his grace and fueled by his love, even if it doesn't make any sense, even if it goes against who you may think things are or, you may, or what other people may say, I'm going to do things his way because he's promised to present me blameless. He's promised not to keep me, not to, not to have me stumble. And he is glorious and majestic and he rules over all. And he is my Lord and Savior. And I see him in my mind's eye dying upon the cross. And I know that he is alive and that he is interceding for me. Why would I let anything in that doesn't belong to him? Let's let our lives be a doxology to him. That will steady you. And that will ready you for his glory. Father, I pray that you'd help us this morning. I pray, Father, that we would not believe that it's all on our own strength and in our own power that we are obedient. It is because of your love and grace and mercy and presence by your Holy Spirit that keeps us steady. And presents us ready. Lord, one day we are going to have to stand before you. We've all been to funerals of people of all ages. We don't know when that time will be. But Lord, you promised to ready us. You promised us to, because of what Christ has done. And because of you empowering us to confess our sin and repent and give our lives over to you, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow you. It is here, Lord, that you give us strength. I pray, Father, if there is anyone here who is in any kind of unrepentant, perpetual, excuse-making sin, that this would be the morning of repentance. If, If there are those that are here that know that this is the place that they want to be a part, where they want to be a part of this family here that you've given us at ARBC. May this be the morning. If there are those that are here that know that you are calling them to deeper service, whether it's like the videos we've been seeing or even deeper service of walking across the street and talking to their neighbors, may this be the morning that we would pray, that we would encourage, that we would not be spectators, but that we would run the play on the field that you've called us to run. Help us, Lord, for your glory and for the good of those that are around you and around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.